Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still, about to head out. Love It or Leave It Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Welcome back to Pod Save America. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm John Lovett. Uh, John Favreau is still vacationing down at Mar-a-Lago, spending some much-deserved time with Twitter. So Lovett and I are holding down the fort today for an <laughs> extra fun July 4th-themed show. Lovett, do you have any fireworks ready for us today? Uh, no, the LAPD Either took all, or, they took all my fireworks. The LAPD took all my fireworks, and they were like, it's fine. We know what to do. Anyway, it was a mess. Uh, well, listen, for those, the show for those who don't have local LA we news, gonna... they really, LAPD blew up a truck and in, in it's part of town. They, but anyway, sorry. I, d- I didn't even know that. Oh, wow, no, that's, that's exciting. Okay. It was a real mess. Well, okay. Well, that's, that sounds like a mess then. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are going to talk about narratives in politics and beyond. And you might be asking why narratives, because narratives, that's what July 4th is all about, right? We are told a story about America stretches from 1776 to today. And there's an important discussion to be had about what's real, what's not, what's good, what could be a blind spot for us as Americans. And we're also going to pick apart some other common media narratives and politics in our culture that sometimes are good, sometimes drive us crazy. We're going to have a little fun with it. Uh, Then we are going to be joined by Jason Concepcion, the co-host of Take Line in all caps NBA, and Ira Madison III, the co-host of Keep It, for a very special conversation about the most patriotic songs. And then finally, you're going to hear my interview with Roger Bennett. He's the co-host of a fantastic sports and soccer podcast called Men in Blazers. We're going to talk about his new book, Reborn in the USA. Roger became a U.S. citizen in 2018 after falling in love with America decades ago as a kid growing up in Liverpool, England. And we'll talk about uh, American culture and the power of the American story and probably some sports, and it'll be a lot of fun, and I think you will love hearing from him. But love it. Uh, Let's start with this narrative that defines July 4th and defines this episode, which is American exceptionalism. What's your take? Good? Bad? It's complicated? So- Here's what I want to say about American exceptionalism, and it is this. Anyone who believes that America is the best country in the world cannot also believe in American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism Mm. is a pejorative to describe people who believe that America is the best country in the world despite evidence. And so when someone says, oh, they don't even believe in American exceptionalism, it's really fucking confusing to me because- Presumably, someone who says, I think America's the fucking best, one of which is me. I'm one of those people. And uh, 
if it's not because I believe or you believe, if the person who says that doesn't believe in American exceptionalism, they believe America is the best based on the facts, right? To say mm-hmm. you believe in mm-hmm. American exceptionalism is like a paradox. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how it doesn't really make sense? I hear what you're saying. I mean, I think, well, look, just so listeners know, Love is constantly just popping into the office and being like, America, <laughs> fucking best. <laughs> we Go rule. to the bathroom. Sure. <laughs> I mean, like, I think some of this is kind of like definitional, right? Like, there are things about America that are exceptional. Until recently, I would have included our history of uh, peaceful transfers of power. Sure. That got a little complicated on January 6th, right? Our constitution, our system of government is unique in that we have this capacity to amend it and fix it over time. I think the term American exceptionalism, it was first coined by Alexis de Tocqueville, right? But it's changed a ton over time. And I think we get into trouble when we get too high on our own supply. And we decide that it means like America is more just and more pure than anyone else. And like our way of life is just inherently better than everyone else's. And we're going to force it on you. Like that to me is a real risk. Well, it's that, you know, Obama got dinged for saying Americans believe in American exceptionalism in the same way Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism. And it was like, he it was like a two weeks of fucking stories about him <laughs> right. not believing America is the best, but actually he was saying something different. American exceptionalism isn't something you can believe in the inside. It's what people on the outside say about us and our myopic view about America being the center of every story. That said, Mm. I believe America is the center of every story. That's my position, which is why I reject American exceptionalism, because America is the best. Do you see the problem? Do you see the issue? I like it. I like it. I also think like what I kind of like cringe at a little bit is the constant like reflexive this isn't who we are rhetoric whenever something terrible happens in the United States, which ignores the reality that a lot of the things we're talking about that are terrible in that moment have happened a lot, right? Slavery, Jim Crow. These are some of the recent conversations we had. And then there was this just ridiculous, idiotic uh, 1776 commission report that the Trump folks leaked or released, sorry, right at the end of the administration that was literally just whitewashed, literally, U.S. history in an effort to push back on the 1619 project. And like that, I, to me, is the ultimate like it, it, it's it's American exceptionalism to me is good when it's aspirational. And it's a story about America constantly trying to live up to an ideal. It's really bad when it's a cudgel that just silences criticism. And I think that's what like kind of the the right wing version has become. Yeah, there's also um, there's like another level to the racism that goes along with the fighting against teaching of our history in full. Like, you know, oh, and, and you know, you see this with people like Josh Hawley saying, like, I don't want to teach mm-hmm. my I don't want our kids to learn that America is racist. I want America people to have hope in America. And implicit in that, you know, Sam Sanders and we, we talked about with Sam is that. You know, mm-hmm. who is who is teaching for is teaching for for white kids, but it's also who is who does America belong to? And to not ref- to not include the full scope of our history in our patriotism is to deny the Americanness of the people denied America's promise for hundreds of mm-hmm. years. And like it's their it's this was their country, too. And their th- yes. this was their story, too, in full. And so like anyway, end of thought. End of thought. No, that's I, I agree with that. And that's why I do think it's more than symbolic that we are now celebrating and recognizing Juneteenth and that we've made a lot of progress in this set of conversations. Um, I have another narrative for you okay. that drives me a little bit crazy, which is that Washington used to be a bastion of civility, if we could only get back to that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I would say, like, you know, look, you could start this narrative in a lot of places. Like, if you go way back to the 1800s, right, a, a representative beat Charles Sumner 
with a metal-tipped cane on the Senate floor. I don't know that that's the civility we're looking for. The more modern iteration is Ronald Reagan, Tip O'Neill. They would have a scotch, talk like men, cut deals on Social Security reform. Why can't we get back to that? Woe is Washington, right? Like, we miss those days. And the problem here is this is such rose-colored revisionist history. Like, yes, these guys cut a deal, but it wasn't because of friendship or civility. Love it. How civil is this quote to you? Quote, the evil is in the White House at the present time, and that evil is a man who has no care and no concern for the working class of America and the future generations of America and who likes to ride a horse. He's cold. He's mean. He's got ice water for blood. <laughs> That's Tip O'Neill talking about Ronald Reagan. I like I like that. I like that side of Tip O'Neill. You don't hear enough about it. Yeah, it's also like, you know, um, one of the one of the great political deals ever made in Washington was between Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats to uh, allow the South to be an authoritarian region so that yeah. uh, FDR could become president, you know, yeah, State, the good. Democrats could win elections. Yeah. So some deals are really bad, I think. My view is that deals inherently aren't good or bad. It's a, it depends on the deal, I think. That's my view on deals. Honestly, this narrative, I, I really wrote this down. This is this narrative is the cousin of the sort of bipartisan policies are inherently better than partisan policies narrative, which is just absurd when you think about like mm -hmm. the Iraq war versus the Affordable Care Act. But yeah, I mean, the, the civility case, like I, it just ignores so many things. It ignores the way the parties have changed over time. It ignores the way gerrymandering has radicalized the House of Representatives and changed political incentives. And it also just ignores the reality that yeah, okay, sure, like members of Congress used to be better friends. They were also more homogenous at that time. It was more white. It was more male. It was more Christian. It was a bunch of people from the same social class. So like, I, I think we just need to be very careful for the sort of olden days that we're pining for. Because if you look under the hood, I'm not sure that they, they were quite that great. I agree. I don't really do very much pining as a rule. <laughs> not a piner. Um, I'll go. Uh, my next, my narrative is uh, moderate Democrats in swing districts taking more moderate stances are hurt by left-wing members in left-wing districts taking more left-wing stances. Mm. Um, this this came up uh, uh, soon after the election when there was some uh, uh, hand-wringing about the fact that, yes, Joe Biden won, but the House majority shrunk, that Democrats uh, weren't able to win a resounding victory in the Senate that we were ultimately later able to win the Georgia races, obviously. Um, and this began with a fight between Connor Lamb and AOC that I don't think played out particularly helpfully, but, but I'm glad sort of has died down. And basically, you know, the crux of the issue is that it is it seems very true that moderate Democrats or Democrats in swing districts are getting tagged by monikers like socialism or uh, uh, defund the police or Medicare for all or a host of other policies that are not helpful to them amongst the the kind of suburban moderates that these that these more moderate members are trying to win. And so where do they mm -hmm. point? They point to the uh, the people on the left of the party, both in Congress and outside of Congress, the activists who have made defund the police or abolish ICE or Medicare for all or a host of other left wing priorities. Sort of they have kind of found very ingenious ways to frame these debates, simple, elegant, powerful messages that break through and have helped shift our debate, but then uh, through Fox News and propaganda organs get tagged to all Democrats. And my issue here is, I think, so, you know, you know, John, Tommy and I, we talk about this all the time that like, I think one thing that you see on Twitter, but I think you see in a larger way is um, it's more fun to yell at people who respond to you. 
Totally. Uh, it's more fun to engage with people who see you, acknowledge you, care what you have to say, or perhaps in some right. way affected by your arguments. Uh, and so, you know, it's this, it's a similar phenomenon of, of looking for your keys uh, where the light mm-hmm. is shining. But the reality is whether the left of the party takes a strong stance or not, Fox News, Tucker Carlson, uh, right wing radio, the, the, the Facebook right wing organiza- organizations, they don't need uh, uh, they don't need um, a lot of help to find the activist, the random person the, the, to saying something to the left that they're going to tag you with. And so don't hate the player, hate the game. The, re- the issue is that we have a massive right-wing operation that's taking every extreme or every left idea and trying to paint everybody with it. And we have to fight that, not each other, because there's always going to be a left of the party. And they're always going to be trying to pull us to the left. That's a good thing. And so we got to find a way to fight the actual cause. The cause of the problem is not the left person saying something. It's the system that takes that left person's words and applies it to everybody, even if it's not helpful in certain places. And we, I think we lose sight of that because it's easier to argue with people who argue back. That's a good one. That's a good one that I believe deeply. Uh, here's one that's a little that's a little tough to swallow for uh, former White House communications aides, which is the bully pulpit. That there there is this belief, a narrative that the White House comes with a bully pulpit that is this huge rhetorical weapon that presidents could pull out at any time, and you can just use it as you want to move political opinion. Now, what folks need to know is there is no evidence that this is true. A bunch of political scientists have dug into the data. So Ronald Reagan was known as the great communicator. He saw support for programs he opposed, like regulations, healthcare spending, welfare, education, environmental protection. Those Support for those things went up during his presidency, and support for defense spending went down when he was championing it. Uh, Other researchers looked at FDR's fireside chats. They only increased his approval by less than 1%. His big speeches on issues like entering the uh, Second World War, they didn't move the electorate either. Bill Clinton visited 200 cities and towns before the 1994 midterms. God bless his staff. Uh, His numbers dropped. His health care bill failed. Republicans retook the House. Bush tried to sell Social Security privatization failed. Gallup looked at the impact of State of the Union addresses going back to 1978, and they found that they rarely affect uh, the president's public standing in any meaningful way. So my like take home here is that sometimes talking about stuff could just backfire. Like when a president talks about an issue, things that are nonpartisan can become partisan the minute you champion it. So I think White Houses and activists need to think just as much about do we want the president to not focus on this, to not talk about it and just work it behind the scenes and see if that's a more effective path to getting something done than to like make it the headline of the State of the Union? Yeah, I think there's two things. I think that's one. I think sometimes it's like um, uh, I think politics, really messaging generally. I think it's true for, you know, corporations trying to sell something. Um, it's like being on a swing. You got to pump your legs at the right time and you got to be mm-hmm. resonant with the wave. You know, it doesn't help to 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 pump your legs halfway down. You got to be right at the top or right at the back. And so I think sometimes it's about knowing the moment where you can kind of use the momentum of a conversation and, and move it a little bit further than it otherwise would have gone. Easier to easier to to uh, to make a fire worse than it is to start a fire. Um, mm-hmm. And then the deeper part of this, too, is. Political news is about people, it's about individuals, it's about personalities, much harder to make systems trends, um, institutions, the protagonist uh, in the news just doesn't work. 
Uh, and so we end up talking about individuals and personalities when we need to be talking about like systems and structures. I think that's right. Yeah. Oh, here's one. Um, this is this is a stretch, but I think implicit in a lot of our politics right now, including my own. So I'll own this and take. I, I it doesn't change my. Um, why don't I just say it? The nature of polarization, that the nature of polarization as it is right now is like a semi-permanent fixture. And so the only way we can combat things like the anti-majoritarian nature of the Senate is to add states or the only way uh, we can, you know, stop Republicans from having an inherent advantage in gerrymandering is to stop gerrymandering. I want to stop those things. And I want D.C. to become a state. I want Puerto Rico to have the chance to choose if they want to become a state. I want to add seats to the Supreme Court. I'm for all of it. Let's go. Uh, but I think sometimes there's a, like a learned helplessness around why Democrats fail to win in some of the reddest places in the country when Democratic politics like expanding Medicaid, raising the minimum wage, union politics sometimes do much better than Democrats. And so I think we should sometimes put a little more thought <laughs> into why there's this massive delta between Democratic policies and Democratic politicians. And when we are also focused on fighting some of these counter-majoritarian institutions, because like, you know, we weren't talking as much about how anti-Democratic the Senate was when we had 60 seats. Really didn't come up true. in the conversation as much. So like, we should not write off the smallest states in the country and just assume that those are Republican forever. There's just no reason to accept that uh, as a permanent state. That's good. That's good. Uh, here's one for you. This is how we got Trump. People love to state their pet issue and say, this is how we got Trump. Very My annoying. hot take is you're always wrong. 100% of the time you're wrong when you make this claim because it wasn't one thing. That's that's more of a, a statement than a debate. Here's one for Here's one to debate with you, Levin. Okay. Public apologies work and they're the right thing to do. I used oh. to be a firm believer that like if you screw up in the public eye, you own it, you apologize, you bust out that notes app, you write out, your, you take your lumps, right? I feel 100% confident now that that is the wrong advice and that our culture punishes people who apologize, who, you know, it, it just gets covered more. There's voices who say your apology sucked. It wasn't good enough. Those drown out all the others. And it's just it's a broken process. I think that's, yeah, I think it's, I don't think that there's a clear rule. Um, I think it depends. I think one one more one clear version of this to me is uh, not for, not for moral reasons, but for pure mercenary political calculus. Yes, never resign. Never ever resign. Yes, like resigning is always a mistake. Uh, Andrew Cuomo still governor. Elliot Spitzer. I think he's in space maybe, or with John Edwards building houses. I don't know where they are. Never, ever resign. Mark like, Sanford, yeah. Like maybe it's Mark, you know, well, Mark Sanford, he resigned, then he, he ran did again, the thing. and he won, and then he yeah. lost, but he's a weirdo, and he's an exception, and, you know, edge cases Likes make bad hike. laws, you know? Um, but, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, the, um, if someone... If someone close to me was and that and was in a was in a terrible political scandal and asked me what to do and I was focused only on what was best for them, not for the state, not for the government, mm -hmm. not for anybody but mm -hmm. them as individuals, I would say you hang on for dear fucking life. You hide, Cling. you do whatever. Maybe apologize though. See, this is why I think it's sometimes you can uh. you can get in an apology. Although Liz Brunig, who is a great writer uh, and often heterodox in a way that makes Twitter very angry, but who I respect a lot, talks about how we have created a kind of system um, where there is uh, lots of repentance, but no acceptance. <laughs> and so yes. like, that's not ideal. That's not no. ideal. Uh, but um, 
end of uh, incoherent thought. <laughs> no, so I agree with all of that. Do you have uh, Do you have any more narratives? Oh, I have, I have one more. Ones. I have one more, please. Which is um, the value of authenticity. Uh, mm. There's this idea that what we're looking for is authentic politicians, and I think Trump ought to be the thing that kills that dead because he is on stage <laughs> an incredibly authentic liar a fully present performer living in the moment, saying what is in his heart and obviously completely full of shit. Because when you're saying you're looking, so I think it's because authenticity is a lot of good traits stripped of their meaning, stripped of their morality. Like authenticity is an impression of honesty, integrity, trustworthiness, right? But when Mm -hmm. you signal to the world that we are looking for politicians that seem authentic, you announce it to ambitious people of all levels of virtue that like what you need to do is put on a performance of authenticity. And you know what? They'll do it. They'll do it. So we don't want authenticity. We want integrity. And by the way, I think sometimes the authenticity trap is that authenticity is, I think, for, uh, for, for many reasons, easier to be performed by old white guys and mm-hmm. often harder to be grasped in the media by by women, by people of color, by gay people. So uh, no authentic integrity, not authenticity. That's my I like that's that. my position. I like that. Um, OK, this is a random one. I don't know if this is a narrative as much as just like a thing that annoys me. Why do people gender inanimate objects? You hear this mostly from men a lot of times around like food, like steaks and beer, masculine salads mm-hmm. and wine feminine. No, it's fucking food. You're sure. eating food, sustenance to keep you alive. But I actually think it's kind of a dumb, damaging thing. If you think about the idea of telling a bunch of young kids, especially young boys, that like eating healthy is not what they should be doing for like made up gender reasons. It's a thing that's really bothered me for a long time. Yes, it's um, it's happening. It's playing out right now around. Um, I'm trying to even say it without the pejor- lab grown meat. Like meat that mm-hmm. is not made of cows, but made in it, yep. out of other materials. And, you know, there's this like culture war going on now in Texas where they're like, you can't call it meat, right. the, you know. And and, right. and and I saw there was a great ad by one of the companies, Impossible Beyond, one of the fake meat companies. Fake meat's not the right term. We need a better term. You haven't cracked it yet. I've told you this. You haven't listened. Uh, but <laughs> their campaign is, are you afraid you'll like it? Which I think is really good. It's really good, good kind of pushing back on that. But yeah, it's like <laughs> there's always this thing. It was like when Ted Cruz put bacon around the end of like some kind of a gun to cook the bacon yeah, with the gun. To cook the bacon. And right? it's, it's absurd. It's um yeah, there's a uh yeah, the um <laughs> yeah, masculine food is pretty uh incoherent. Um but you know. Decades of bad advertising basically just rotting our brains. Yeah. It's interesting. It's like even flowers, right? Like flowers are feminine. Right. What, 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 what? It's very, Why? it's, uh, it's hard, right? Cause so much of language is analogy and like we, we speak in analogies all the time, but they really do get into our brains. Um, yeah. Gender. It's a real pickle. <laughs> it's a real pickle. Uh, <laughs> last one I prepped for you uh, and we can cut this if it's too weird. Stalin was a good listener. 
Now, okay, yeah. <laughs> love it. This, this take was hot on the Twitter streets a couple days ago. A professor at Riverside City College in California tweeted, people say I idolize, in quotes, Stalin. Not true. I hold a fair and balanced view. The man was neither savior nor saint, but he was at once a very successful revolutionary, a great contributor to Marxist theory, and said to be a great listener and collaborator during discussions, end quote. So you might look at Stalin and see a paranoid totalitarian leader who threw millions of his own people into the gulags, I see a shoulder to cry on. It's, um, there is no view too stupid <laughs> to find quarter on the internet. None. Not a one. And a one. Uh, this was true, you know, when I see Elon Musk tweets, I think maybe rocket science is easy. When I <laughs> see Ben Carson's uh, uh, public utterances, Life. I think maybe brain surgery is easier than it looks. Uh-huh. Uh, when I see this person uh, tweet what he's been tweeting about fucking Stalin, one of the worst <laughs> mass murderers in human history, I think maybe getting uh, 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 a job as a professor is easier than it looks. Uh, and yeah. um, here's the other thing I would say. Uh, just a reminder, you can say nothing if you want. All Say of nothing. us. We can just you can just All let us. let it go by. You can just let it go by. Yeah, I thought Bo Burnham put it very well in his yeah. special. Just just shut, shut the fuck, fuck up. up. Uh, one hour. Just because there's just um, in Dark Knight, there's this moment where this cop wants to interrogate the Joker, and the cop says, "I've seen you know I've seen a lot of punks, and I know the difference between the ones you can hit and the ones who will like it." well, I'm going to hit you and I'll just have to try to like it more. That is what engaging with trolls is. You are engaging with a joker who likes the pain and whom you cannot beat. So so you know what? Don't do it. The lesson of Dark Knight, uh, don't feed the trolls. <laughs> don't feed the trolls. I totally, I see it. I like it a lot. Uh, okay, that's our narrative section. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Jason Concepcion and Ira Madison III to talk about patriotic songs. Stick around. It will be a lot of fun. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Okay, we want to welcome in some very special guests for this segment about patriotic music. First, we have the co-host of the fantastic podcast, Take Line, and the host of the YouTube series, All Caps NBA, Jason Concepcion. Jason, welcome. Let's go. Land of the free, home of the brave, baby. (laughs) Uh, We are also thrilled to have with us the co-host of Keep It, a man too spicy for Twitter, Ira Madison III. Drop the nudes, Ira. Welcome to the pod. Hi, I'm glad to be here while John's on vacation. <laughs> okay, we thought that was the deepest cut of all of us. Here's the plan. So we're going to do, for all the listeners, we're going to do a little draft. So we're going to select our five most patriotic songs. When listeners hear this episode, 
you will be able to go to the various Pod Save America social media accounts and vote on who had the best draft or just talk shit to us. There's no stakes here. This is just fun. So just come for the ride. So uh, when folks pick their song, feel free to make a little case for why it's the best. We're going to define patriotism broadly, I assume. Uh, so we'll start by me drawing some names out of a hat to see who goes first, and then we'll do a snake draft. Okay. Ooh, love it. Number one pick. All right. I'll kick us off. I'll kick us off. Let me uh, let me draft the others real quick. Okay. We got to get our, our order. Number two, Jason. Ooh. Number three, Ira. I'm bringing up the rear here. Okay. Dear diary. All right, here we go. <laughs> my my kicking us off. You are. <laughs> you go Ira. one, and then I'll do two at the end because it's a snake. Well, should right, you explain? Should you explain for the for the for the audience out there who's not perhaps versed in in the snake draft what the snake draft is? Explain it for of me. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck yeah. the snake draft is. He's, I've been pretending to. I've been so, pretending. <laughs> <laughs> He, he's a pro, people. Jason's a pro here. So the way a snake draft works is, is whoever picks first goes, then goes second, third, fourth. And then the person who drafted fourth, so me, I'll pick two. And then we'll come back around to love it, and he'll do two. Right? So that's, mm. that's how you don't get screwed if you're at the end. So think about the way a snake moves, like in this kind of squiggling fashion. Yeah. As, squiggles. As the snake hits the end the fourth pick, it then comes back. And so the fourth pick picks mm-hmm. again. And then when it gets back to the front, the formerly first pick now picks again. And it does this whole squiggle. Like I said, he's a pro. Don't tread it's on a... me. Now I, now, now Don't you can do see it. it. Do not do it. Now you can it. see it. All right. I'm going to kick us off. This is an anthem for our time and for this moment. Uh, it is a song written by Will I Am, Otto Knows Jetman, Whoa. Sebastian Ingrosso, Anthony Preston, and Ruth Ann Cunningham, along with the singer of the song, Britney Spears, mm. who was the lead single. It was the lead Free single her! from the 2013 <laughs> album, Britney Jean. The song is Work Bitch, but it was edited for <laughs> radio better. as Work Work. I will share with you some of the lyrics that I think capture both the American experience and the ongoing tragedy of Britney Spears' captivity. Here we go. You want a hot body, you want a Bugatti, you want a Maserati, you better work, bitch. You want a Lamborghini sipping martinis looking hot in a bikini, you better work, bitch. You want to live fancy, live in a big mansion party in France, you better work, bitch. You better work, bitch. You better work, bitch. You better work, bitch. Now get to work, bitch. How is it that we did not understand that these songs were a cry for help? You know, you know, well you know, love it. I know you had to read those lyrics. What's your point? I knew them off the top of What's my head. Point, Ara? Oh, shit. Oh, wow. You're oh, gayer wow. than me. I am. <laughs> Look at you. It's, Look it's, at getting, you. it's getting personal early, everybody. Uh, Jason, wow. you're up with your second first pick. Uh, well, it's not only a great July 4th song. I see it as a great song for moving to Los Angeles, which is a, a move that I made uh, several years back. Fuck. You know, I hopped off the plane at LAX with, Fuck. A, with Fuck. a dream in my cardigan. Uh, <laughs> lyrics by uh, Jesse J. I, I love that a, that, a, that a British person wrote this song. Uh, vocal by Miley Cyrus. It is, of course, Party in the USA. Uh, an anthem for our times, an anthem for all time, an addictive number. 
I love the song. Does the does the geography quite make sense that she would hop off the plane at LAX and then looking to the right see the Hollywood sign? That doesn't quite mm. track, but love the song anyway. Party in the USA. She couldn't have All taken right. the 10. She couldn't have taken the 10 to the mm, no, it doesn't yeah, work. That doesn't, no. Yeah. The one at one. Mm. All right. How do we well, get over we're there? Maybe she went south and then. But again, Jesse J, a, a British person, wrote the song, so that's fine. You know yeah. what, Jesse A, uh, Jesse J is a great singer. She can blow. A great singer in her own right. I love her. Yeah, that is true. All right, Ira. Okay, number one pick. My first choice. You know, inspired by the ongoing drama with the filibuster um, <laughs> and people in the Democratic <laughs> Party, um, I'm picking "Where the Party At" by Jagged Edge. Featuring Nelly. Because uh, also, you know, whenever there's American holidays, I'm always like, where the party at? God, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a real good one. Okay. my So I got that's two classic now. Ira. That's classic Ira. He's always, he always bounds in the room and goes, where the party at? Okay. <laughs> I have done All that. Right. My first pick. I'm going to pick two. My first pick, Sam Cooke. A change is going to come. Wow. One of the greatest one. voices in the history of the world. The song became an anthem for the civil rights movement. We will all look past One Night in Miami and how underwhelming that film <laughs> actually was. If you're going to have the most interesting people in history in a room together, maybe have them do something. Just a thought. But that's my first pick. Uh, my second pick is Green Day, American Idiot. Whoa. It is a takedown mm. of post 9-11 hysteria. Don't want to be an American idiot. One nation controlled by the media. Information age of hysteria. It's calling out to idiot America. How the, um, perfect is that? Uh, shout out. Shout out to the person who would lean over and say, this is about this is about Bush. Mm. It's about Bush. Uh, it's about Ira, Bush. <laughs> your second pick. Um, so my next song is um, by an icon. Uh, Lenny Kravitz. Okay. It's American Ooh, Woman. And the lyrics sort of is how I feel about most American women. American woman, stay away from me. American woman, mama, <laughs> let me be. The American woman's a white woman. Wow. Okay. That's an assumption. <laughs> <laughs> I think we know this, who he's yeah. telling to get away. Okay. Whoa. You're right. And who could forget? Of, of course, it. here's Jason, why I sorry. love this. I, I just want to say that I love this pick both for uh, its essential essence in and of itself and the fact that uh, famously Lenny Kravitz split his leather pants while mm. performing this song, mm -hmm. uh, the clip then going viral, uh, an amazing moment uh, in American history. Indeed. Indeed. Let it all hang out, Lenny. <laughs> he did. Uh, gosh, I'm good. For my next pick, I'm going to go slightly meta. I, uh, this song, I love this song. It's not just a 4th of July song, but I think specifically it works really well on the 4th. It is Katy Perry's Fireworks. Mm. Uh, firework, excuse me. I, now, I, I, I'm so glad you caught that. Now, do I dock it? <laughs> points because it, because the opening couplet is do you ever feel like a like a plastic bag uh drifting through the wind uh and mm -hmm. and uh you know 
that being a, a reference, I think, uh, to a scene from a bad movie that I'm not going to name because the, na- the movie's bad and problematic. Uh, yes, I do docket points for that, but I still think the chorus is addictive and uh, Katy Perry is a great pop songstress and uh, I would love to hear this song on the 4th of July. Mm, Katy Perry's right Firework. All right, love it. You got two. I got two. Um, and and uh, I really appreciate that choice, Jason. Uh, I uh, I understand why you don't like that film, but I think that anyone who isn't moved by two teens saying that there's so much beauty in the world they don't think that they can take it about a plastic bag f- floating uh, in the wind has no has no has ice in their veins uh, frankly uh, and I disagree with those who say that there was some sort of collective fucking delusion about that movie <laughs> when it came out in what like 90 99 I want to say 99 something like that yeah um it's bad. Why did we think that was profound? Why did we? Why know. did people were like, know. "Oh man, the plastic bag scene." That holy shit. There's something I always remember from because th- because it was from the making of American Beauty, and it was a story in which Steven Spielberg saw an early screening, came out of the movie with a tear rolling down his cheek, and turned to Sam Mendes and said, "You've made a classic." <laughs> uh, and I always think about that. All right, my next two. Uh, first. This is a song called Main Title. Uh, it is the first movement from one of the greatest pieces of orchestral music ever written called Star Wars by the oh. composer John Williams, often connected to a lesser work of film that shares the same name. It is about a group of rebels that take on an empire and win and then, as we learn in later movies, fail to tackle a lot of the systemic internal issues once the empire is defeated. Main Title of Star Wars, one of the greatest songs in American history. John Williams, one of the greatest composers in American history, doesn't get the credit, doesn't get the credit. If he put some of those songs into a symphony and then Spielberg took from that symphony as found music, he'd be considered one of the greatest composers of all time. But he's not because he's got the stink of cinema on him. Shame on all of us. Shame on all of us. Mm. Wow. Shame on Jason. How dare you? This is a great pick. I agree with it. It's a good pick. Okay. Uh, yeah, one more. Yeah, one more. Love it. Oh, my next is a song called Fanfare for the Common Man, written to honor America. Yeah, that's right. Okay. That's right. Written by Aaron Copeland, a gay Jew from Brooklyn. You hear that song, boom, boom, and you're on your... Is he single? You're on your fucking feet. Is he single? (laughs) He's dead. But, but one thing I really liked. Kind of. So yes, but one thing I really liked. One thing I really liked about Aaron Copeland is he kept getting older, but his boyfriend stayed the same age. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Kevin Spacey fan over there. (laughs) That's not. They were adults. I'm not. They were just. He just. You know. they, They were adults. You creeps. Oh, that's a good pick. All right, Jason, you're up. Woo! Okay. Uh, tough to pick here, but uh, let's go with one of the greatest renditions of the Star Spangled Banner ever put Fuck. to wax recording, whatever you want to say. It mm. is Whitney Houston's rendition, mm-hmm. Rest in Power, of the Star Spangled Banner. 
I know we have uh, we have divisive feelings about this particular song, but who can hate on Whitney's stirring and absolutely flawless delivery of this song? It is Whitney mm-hmm. Houston singing okay. the national anthem. Children were singing that song so at weddings, yeah. graduations, yeah. at funerals. <laughs> you know what else I really like about that the performance, Jason? Mm-hmm. Because I remember because it's so big and it is so memorable. And and so when when I think of it, I think of it as this gigantic, incredible, long, sweeping performance. But actually, she walks out there in that tracksuit. Yep. She starts, she crushes it, crushes and it. she's gone. It's not it's tight. It's tight. The thing I remember about it is that after it was done, who and I don't remember who the who the person calling the game was just went, whoa. <laughs> like, <laughs> 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 Understated. Yeah. Uh, Ira, well, you are up. <laughs> all right. Well, um, I'm surprised no one picked this already, um, mm-hmm. but I'm going to have to go with the seminal classic, uh, American Pie, um, which of course was released in 2000 on the soundtrack for the Madonna Rupert Everett film, The Next Best Thing. I'm, of course, talking about the Madonna <laughs> cover of American Pie. Oh my God. <laughs> Disgusting. Shame That's on you. Good. Thank Shame you, on William you. Orbit, Sicko. for the remix. <laughs> sick. Uh, that is a sick choice. Great hashtag choice. Hashtag did it first. <laughs> I'm I'm coming. I'm bringing the heat right back Uh-oh. to Jason because I'm going with the Jimi Hendrix version of the Star oh, Spangled Banner yeah, can't at Woodstock. Can't beat it because the song itself it evolved over time. Like the country, there were hundreds of different lyrics that that morphed into what we hear today. The Hendrix version, some would argue, is the most powerful version of it in history. Jimmy was in the army. Vietnam was raging. It was like he was just this torn, tortured person in that era. So Hendrix is uh, my guy here. And then my next one, similar time frame, but I'm going to go with Creedence Clearwater Revival, Fortunate Son. Wow. Because that is like an in-your-face fucking angry protest song about class and who fights our wars and who makes the decisions to go to war. And it's angry and it's scathing and it's awesome. Didn't Trump come out to Fortunate Son and like one of those yes. like, don't, didn't listen to the lyrics moments in, in American yeah. yes. political history? That's exactly right. <laughs> and, I, and that's America too. Mm-hmm. That's a big part. That's, that's, that's America's story. Yeah, Singing not paying songs attention. and not paying attention to the I, lyrics. Yes, quite, that's the quite. story of this country too. Uh, Ira, your fourth pick. You know, my fourth pick is um, from a musical. I love this. It's very American. Um, it is... The opening song from Assassins, Everybody's Got the Right. Off-Broadway cast, I, I, not Broadway. I want you to know, I want you to know that as I was thinking about Off-Broadway, as I was thinking about my choices, I was, the only place where I feared overlap would be Sondheim. That was where mm. I thought that that's where we might might overlap. I didn't end up choosing any. Mm. Uh, you probably would have picked something like America from West Side Story. <laughs> um, shit. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> um, am I up? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Jason's oh. up. Jason's up. Oh, Jason's up. Wow. I'm. Uh, I'm going to jump down. I'm going to pick up one of my lower seeds a little early, mm. just because as a high school band kid, 
this one uh, really speaks to me. I love a good band arrangement. I'm going to go with Stars and Stripes Forever by John Phillips, who's a ba 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 It's, uh, you know, as soon as you hear it, you want to you wanna do that quick step and march. And uh, again, I, I love to hear those tubas. I love to hear those sousaphones. I love to hear the clarinets, the trumpets, the flutes. Give it, give it to me. John Philip Sousa, the stars and stripes forever. It's a great, great pick. Great pick. Uh, you know you're dealing with a master when they name a giant tuba after you. <laughs> when you can make a new tuba. He did, it. He did when, that thing. When you can't get what you need out of the tuba. I need a new tuba. For what we you're putting it. out there. We need, a, we, need a, we need a super tuba. Our current tuba technology is not up to the standards that I am looking for. Therefore, I'm going to disrupt the tuba space and create a whole new tuba with a wider range. Love it. You got two. I'm just loving Sousa disrupting the tuba space. All right. My next two. And I want to go in here knowing that some people, some people play to win. Some people play for history. All right, with the choices okay. that they make. All right. Okay. My okay. next choice. It is. It is from the ballet rodeo, the courting at Burnt Ranch, specifically the section called Hoedown, the 1942 ballet composed by. You guessed it, gay American, born 1900, died 1990. That's right. It's Lithuanian Jewish origins, Aaron Copeland, with hoedown from rodeo. And you, and he knows it. Yes. I'm well aware of it. I love it. Big fan. You are talking about so many dead gay people today. It's the same one. It's the one dead gay guy. Well. I almost... I want you to know, I almost, I, I made a choice and I, I, I almost was going to give you a range of gay Jewish composers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the problem was it was hard to not go with George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. That's great. One. But Rhapsody in Blue has been double tapped in the back of the head. One shot by Woody Allen in Manhattan, the other by United Airlines. So uh-huh. that's an executed song dead on the ground. Uh, and then it was mm. like, well, there's Samuel Barber, but it's like Adagio for strings, while very no, American. It's too, too sad. It's too sad. Even though the American story is, songs I'm just thinking 9/11, and of while course, like freak out. I mean, never forget. But like, yeah, it's too much. I mean, isn't the most American Gershwin song "Slap That Bass"? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Why not? Why not? Uh, my well, next choice. <laughs> <laughs> And that's not the, there's another too that you're not, there's another, there's, there's darker, there's darker, there's darker choices in the Gershwin song catalog. But the next choice is Appalachian Spring, specifically the Allegro by the late composer. It's Aaron Copeland. It's Aaron Copeland. And my reason for choosing all of these Copeland songs, again, knowing that this was not for a win, but for history is I just want to remind everybody listening that gay Jews from Brooklyn wrote it. the American songbook, all right? They it's wrote true. America's songs, all right? Some of them yeah. married women, and they hated it. Some of them <laughs> didn't. Some of them 
married women and then had heart attacks, which seems like probably were just kind of panic attacks from the lives they had to lead. But they wrote great songs. All right. Shout out Charles Ives. I don't know if he was gay, actually. Shout out to Charles Ives, whether you were gay or straight. If Charles Ives was Charles Ives was straight, I apologize. <laughs> he I was apologize. an accountant. I do know he was an accountant. All right. He was a, or or an ad man. Everyone's gay when they're dead. It's it's true. That's not that the Mormons have anything to say about it. Ira go. That is true. Oh <laughs> uh, no, Jason's up. It's a Jason, oh, Jason then Ira then me. Oh my God. Okay. Snake trapped. Woo. Snake draft. Well, here is where I'm kind of thrown into disarray a little bit here. You know what? I'm going to say I thought about uh, I'm just going to take you into my process. I thought about uh, picking American Boy, but I already picked a song written by another British person about America. So I'm not going to do that. I also don't know what Estelle is up to right now. So I'm not going to I'm going to she's go away on. from that one. Is she queuing on now? No, OK, so probably. I'm glad I didn't I pick. Know. OK. <laughs> Slander. <laughs> So I am going to go, gosh, this is tough. You know what? I'm going to go with Woody Guthrie's uh, This Land is Our Land. Uh, you learn it in school. Uh, it is a folkways classic, one of the great mm. protest songs uh, in American history. Uh, the fact that they teach it to kids uh, is funny to me because then you read the lyrics and you're like, oh, this is this is actually quite uh, this is like actually a revolutionary uh, socialist propaganda that I'm learning as a child, which is which I maintain sharing this country as as one people. Mm. It's an ideal that we should try to live up to this. Land is our land, Woody Guthrie. It's critical race theory. Like that a lot is what it is. It is. <laughs> yeah. That's um, good. Don't let don't let the don't let the right read the lyrics yeah. to this land is our land. Don't tell Tom Cotton. Ira, your final pick. I know. It's like, do you think I'm gonna go for a very serious, earnest one? Or I see Lovett's face. I know what he thinks I'm gonna do. But I'm gonna go with a serious one. <laughs> I'm gonna go with um the Black national anthem as sung by Beyonce at Coachella. Mm -hmm. I knew it. Yeah, lift every voice and sing. Great choice. It's a great one. There was great a real choice. opportunity there for you to say one of the many other songs she sang. I mean, I could have gone with Independent <laughs> Woman because mm -hmm. I'm constantly throwing my hands up at her because I am an independent woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm. I'm a mama <sighs> who's. Profit and dollars. <laughs> you bet. You bet you are. Yeah. That's what everyone says about you. Thank you. <laughs> Struggling here with this last one. Uh, okay. Know what I'm going to do. D'Angelo, Devil's Pie. Mm. Fuck the slice. We want the pie. Watch us all stand in line for a slice of the Devil's Pie. It's about greed materialism what is more american than that rick rubin i think produced it pretty sure he did great song great artist underrated listen to it kids if you don't know this one also featured in the movie belly which is also underrated if you want to see lots of rappers acting so that's my tommy. that's my final pick <laughs> not tommy talking <laughs> about belly on this morning <laughs> I think I've seen Belly 10 times. I see that for you. It's a good you movie. Know, there's that scene where they come into the club. Yeah. And like, it's all lit up. I forget what song's playing. Anyway, I'm not going to sing it. Uh, 
guys. Yeah, I was really hoping. I was I was on the edge of my seat, hoping that it would happen. <laughs> no, 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 man. Singing is uh, something you only hear on uh, on all caps NBA because oh. one of us went to Berkeley and one of us can't well, sing. Well, that doesn't mean I can sing. Shit. You know, a hype Williams classic. Mm-hmm. So, look, here's the thing. As a small child, I had a wonderful, melodious voice, mm-hmm. uh, famed at Camp Starlight, uh, where I was Oliver, where I took on many a great role, and then I hit puberty, and I vividly remember uh, the two gay guys uh, who ran the theater department. One of them saying, what happened to John? And then the guy at the piano went, puberty. And then, and that was the end of my, <laughs> that was the end of my music career. Uh, so I won't be doing very much singing. You were bullied by the Gershwin um, also, brothers. <laughs> I was. Also, by the way, just, just doing a little internet, uh, internet searching here. It turns out Charles Ive may, may have also just been a huge homophobe. So I just may have my wires crossed there. Just something to keep in mind. But then again, maybe, maybe she protests too much. You know, I don't know. Fair. I don't Fair. know. Put it in the comments on Charles Ives. Am I up? Is somebody up? Are we done? I think we're How done. We're done. We doing? Wow. We're done. Uh, I, I, I have to thank all of you for for playing along with this. That went better than I ever could have possibly hoped. That is our first, maybe final, uh, patriotic song draft. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Ira. Uh, everyone, go on social media. Uh, the Cricket accounts. You can roast us. You could vote for who had the best draft. And when we come back, you'll hear my interview with Roger Bennett from Men in Blazers uh, about the story of America, his immigration story, sports, soccer, all kinds of other fun stuff. So stick around for that. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. I am thrilled to welcome on today's guest. He's a broadcaster, podcaster, co-host of the fantastic Men in Blazers shows, uh, and the author of the amazing new book, Reborn in the USA, Roger Bennett. Roger, great to have you on the show. Tommy, it's a joy to be back. Uh, Okay, so today's episode, we're talking a lot about narratives, and I thought your book is a perfect way to talk about the power of the story of America, the power of American movies and culture and music, because... You know, this book is a self-described Englishman's love letter to America, and I feel like it's it's so nice to hear that sentiment because I think we rightly have talked a lot about the enormous flaws with this country, but it's important to also remember what a privilege it is to be here. So it's also a, a privilege to have you. Oh, it's remarkable to be here just after the July 4th weekend. You know, I wrote this book for so many reasons. Your listeners can probably tell by my accent that I'm not from the United States, but I have become in my heart more American than Kenny Powers. I'm probably like Bruce Springsteen levels. That's what I aspire to. And I grew up in Liverpool, England at a dark time in uh, the North's history, 1980s, the great city of Liverpool, magical place that was falling apart economically, politically, culturally. There was a heroin epidemic, unemployment soaring, Thatcher just laying waste to the coal pits, to the steel mills. If you've seen Billy Elliot, you kind of know uh, what I have. And I didn't have ballet to save me, Tommy, but what I had 
instead of the arabesques really was american soft power the culture the books the music the movies the television shows the chicago bears and i feasted on all of them they all seemed to be little breadcrumbs of the life that could be lived in color whereas mine was lived in black and white. So I, I want to talk about that feast. I want to talk about John Hughes and the Chicago Bears and the music. Um, but let's just start with your, your formative experience growing up in Liverpool because it's the book is so funny uh, and it's incredibly relatable detail because I want to get into that experience. So you talk about like teachers just caning students regularly, beating the crap out of them with rulers, I guess. There are scenes where students put hydrochloric acid on a teacher's desk. There's a thumbtack <laughs> on a teacher's desk. Was your school full of sociopaths or was this normal for Liverpool? Yeah, one of the working titles for the book was This Passed As Normal. It was it was normal. In I went to a, to a school in England where at the time, almost every school, 1980s, the teachers created discipline by just thrashing the students it was a school it was like the last vestiges of the british empire in my school britain still had an empire children should be seen and not heard studied latin greek and ancient history and any deviation was met with a quick thrashing of the buttocks and you'd you know routinely go home uh, absolutely battered by a sadistic teacher and your parents would just be like oh son were you a bad kid again like it was <laughs> everything past as normal. And, um, you know, it was the story you're referring to. One of my uh, classmates put a thumbtack on a on a teacher's seat and he sat on it and we all held our breath to start laughing when he jumped up in pain. Instead, he delivered the lecture for an entire hour. And at the end, he said, children, I know you put a thumbtack on my seat and I was foolish enough to sit on it. And as a result, I must pay the price. The World War prisoner ca- the World War II prisoner camps teach us if you have an action, you must pay the consequences. And I have paid mine. And he walked out and left us absolutely <laughs> gobsmacked by his sadistic uh, attempt to tell us his life truth, which was pretty awful. Unbelievable. I mean, I guess unless anyone feels too bad for you about all of this, uh, high school sounds just like a bacchanalia. I mean... There are there's some stories that uh, maybe are too hot for TV, Roger. You might have to buy the book to find out what happened to the poor microwave at one <laughs> at one high school party. But it was it was so relatable because the, I think every kids every high school class has that one high school party that got famously out of control, right? Like there was a my sophomore year, my friend walked into one party, uh, and someone he'd never met, met before came up to him and said, uh, "Adam, do you know Millie?" And, and she was the person who lived there. And uh, and she asked this of Adam, and he said, yes, yes, I do. And this stranger said, tell her there was a small fire in the basement, but it's been contained. And that was his <laughs> entryway to this party. And I thought of that as I read about this just debauchery with you and your friends at the pubs every night. I mean, you, you, all, you kind of had to pull yourself back from the brink there at, at one point. Well, you, you survive in a, in a world of darkness by, with humor. Uh, there's a reason so many English comedians come out of Liverpool. It's hilarious. And, you know, you survive through um, making light of a darkness that surrounds you. And also Liverpool was the port city in which every product rolled out to the empire in the olden days. And and then everything came in and and Liverpudlians look out to sea and dream of a world which is different to our own and particularly towards America, Tommy. You know, all the products, all the goods, all the services from America roll through the port of Liverpool. It's not a coincidence that the Beatles uh, came out of Liverpool. It's where rock and roll first hit England. Uh, Paul, John, um, 
you know, George and the other one, they all <laughs> rose up. And that, so we, we felt so close to America. And so I told myself I was an American trapped in an Englishman's body. My, my, my own family story is that of three generations ago. My great-grandfather Harris was a butcher in the Ukraine. He dreamt of a better life like thousands. He wanted to go to Chicago, the hog capital of the world. And the myth of the Liverpool Jewish community is that it's full of the low IQ individuals that when the boat from Eastern Europe docked to refuel in Liverpool, they looked up at the one tall building on the Liverpool skyline, thought they were in New York and got <laughs> off and said, you know, we're here. We've made it to the promised land. But it wasn't. And my, my grandfather, Sam, who I was so close with, when things were dark, he would pick up this little tchotchke Statue of Liberty plastic souvenir toy and he'd just look at it and he'd say, we should have lived there. We should have <laughs> lived there. So I soak every American piece of culture, heart to heart, the love boat, fantasy, I, all of it just filled me with, they were like clues of this land that I felt I was, America, even though I'd never set foot there. And obviously the, the, the parties, Tommy, your party, my party, it was run DMC and the Beastie Boys that were just essentially, they were the puppet masters of all of our behavior for at least two years. Amazing. Uh, so Roger, the transfer portal opened and we got our hands on you on uh, June 1st, 2018. You became an American citizen. Congratulations. We are thrilled to have you. Um, but before you spent, you know, before you became a citizen, you spent all this time in the U.S. or watching, observing America. You are our modern uh, Alexis de Tocqueville. Was there anything you were able to see in that time that, that you think that we missed about ourselves? I first came to Chicago when I was 16. I came over for a summer and I lived in the northern suburbs with my pen pal. That's the person you write to, young listeners, before the age of the internet. And it was John Hughes's neighborhood, Glencoe, Highland Park, I lived in. And it was as promised. It was as promised. It was the Holy Land, you know, New Trier High School, which was bigger than most English universities. My mom went Just there. Oh, you know, Nutria Mafia, thousands of your listeners are no doubt. Yes, I went to, it, it was, it was eye-openly spectacular. And I, I met the Chicago Bears Super Bowl winning team. William Refrigerator Perry whispered into my ear, dream big dreams, kid. You can do anything. I did. You can too. Which I now know working in sports is an amalgam of every cliche. <laughs> any athlete just flings off when they meet some little kid and want to get the hell away from them. But when he said them, I was like, oh my God, he's telling me to move to Chicago as soon as I can. And I did. I did. I moved here at the first opportunity after um, university in England and I got a job, my first job. I was an illegal alien, uh, which I think is an important part of the story, Tommy. You know, I came on a tourist visa and just never left. And to begin with, I was a waiter, a baker, a terrible baker, 4 a.m. shift. Uh, I was a librarian and I'd fall asleep in the in the stacks. I was just hustling. And then I got a job. I'd done a law degree in England. I got a job during the welfare debate um, of, uh, of during the Clinton welfare debate, where um, you know single African American males were really stigmatized uh, in that policy debate. And I worked with public av advocacy groups to train mostly homeless men um, how to talk to the media about the challenges be hmm. between. Um, welfare and work. It was amazing. So I, I arrived and then spent most of my life in the Robert Taylor homes in the near south side of Chicago. And so what I realized immediately, young Rog, and this will not shock you, Tommy, you spend your whole life grappling with this. 
I, I was absolutely aflame, and I still am. That's why I wrote the book. Uh, I still am the biggest motivator, the driver of my life, the driving force in my life that I've acted upon as a kid that grew up with a Statue of Liberty painted on his bedroom wall and the Manhattan skyline and dreamed of moving there and made that dream come true by by luck and, and by luck, by being blessed. Um, but I realized that's the American idea. And I instantly, in the Robert Taylor Holmes, you immediately are exposed to the American reality. And um, the gap between those two um, was start was startling, is startling. Obviously, I wrote the book in the past 17 months of lockdown when all of that really fermented and, it, and became unbearable and impossible to ignore, um, which is why ultimately... You know, the epitaph for a book that's about a love of America, a lifelong love of America, the driving love of America, why the, the epitaph for the book, which is probably the most important words in the book, they're not mine. The epitaph's such a funny, sorry, the, it's why the epigraph of the book, um, the epigraph is such a funny part of any book where you're actually using somebody else's words to to set your own up, or in my case, overshadow them. It's the words of, of Langston uh, Hughes, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be. I love the book, in Your Political Awakening. It starts when your father makes you uh, be one of like the only people in all of Liverpool to support Margaret Thatcher and go around and canvas and knock doors. And then you get <laughs> that obviously <laughs> immediately makes you just a, a, a red hot flaming liberal like like me, you know, it's just like the a- absolute opposite of whatever he intended. Yeah, I mean, my, my father is a judge um, in Liverpool um, and Liverpool. The, when I was growing up, the, the city was it, it felt like you could walk onto a street corner and stare at buildings and genuinely see them deteriorate before your eyes. I remember watching Mad Max, the Thunderdome, and thinking that the wasteland, yeah, the wasteland didn't look that bad to me. I was like, that'd be an upgrade (laughs) on where I'm living. And uh, it was a deeply political time. Thatcher was making the South rise up as a financial center, a financial center in Europe. And Mm -hmm. the North, she just laid waste to and... Liverpool was her punching bag. She stigmatized the entire city. And there was a, we grew up at a time when Liverpool City Council had serious debates about whether they should cede from the rest of England and become a republic, a socialist republic, hmm. the Republic of Liverpool. And in that milieu, my dad was like one of the last conservatives. He adored Mrs. Thatcher, loved the Queen. You know, I was wearing for school like everybody. There were, there were pitch battles at the time all up and down England between the miners trying to fight to save their union and Thatcher and the police force just running battles every night on the news, just thousands of men just bloodied um, in in pitch hand-to-hand battles up and down down the north and the Midlands. And so I wore for school under my collar, which was a caneable offence if you were found a coal not dole sticker. Like I was all in. But my dad, my dad was the last, probably, maybe there were a dozen Thatcher supporters. It was the most fruitless thing. It was like go, Daniel going into the lion's den, but with the opposite set of values. And he said, you know, we need to leaflet these areas with conservative, uh, um, what you call in England, bump propaganda crap. <laughs> and, and you know, I was nine, ten. I'd do whatever my dad said. Like if he said, you can't answer the phone when it rings during dinner time, that's the rule. You do it. And we went. And we had just dogs set on us. We had 
There's, we, had, we had bags of piss chucked at us. We had, and as well, we bloody should have done. And there's no better way, I believe, than to turn your your kids into flaming progressives than to force them to do what we did. So in a way, I'm thankful. And every election, my dad would say before the results came in, when I went to bed, he'd say, if the Conservatives lose tonight, we're going to move to Canada. And Tommy, <laughs> I had seen, I had seen the grassy street. It didn't look half bad in Toronto. And I would go to bed and I would like kneel like I'd seen, you know, the, the, uh, how you pray in school. I'd seen that. That's what you do. I'd kneel, put my hands together and I'd say, please God, let Thatcher lose tonight. And she never did. <laughs> so, like, so this, this political turmoil is this formative experience for you. And then you become a citizen in the middle oh. of the Trump era, right? When, when racism and anti-immigrant sentiment is just like spewing forth from the White House. Did you ever worry that you joined Team America right before we were about to get relegated to a, a lesser tier of democracy? Because it, it, it felt bad for a minute. Mate, mate, mate. I mean, there's a joke on my show amongst our fans that when a elite athlete comes on or a movie star, they are guaranteed to have a just a bomb of a movie within weeks. Or, you know, Aaron Rodgers came on and then oh, lost the lost the Tampa Bay in the in the playoffs immediately. And when that happens, the fans always tweet hashtag curse of Rodge. And I have to be candid that I became an American in 2018. It was the, and will be, the single greatest achievement of my life to be a kid that had dreamed and yearned, completing my, you know, my my family, three generation story, finally becoming what they always dreamt of when they, when they left Ukraine, chased onto the boat, no doubt by Cossacks. Uh, you know, three generations later, I was completing that journey. And to stand in that room, Tommy, to stand in that room in the southern tip of Manhattan in a courtroom um, with 162 individuals from 42 nations around the world. And you look left and right and, you know, these individuals, I, I'd, all I'd done was survive a couple of thrashings from teachers and then late night beatings in chip shops after the pubs had closed. Um, there's individuals who had escaped civil war famine, you know, a trek across, you know, arduous terrain. And all of us had been united by that idea of America. In my life, when I needed it, Run DMC, Chicago Bears, Tracy Chapman, whatever. And I know it sounds, I know it's, but this, to me, it's like saying Animal Farm is, is a book just about horses and pigs. It's much deeper than that. And so are all of those things to me. And America gave me and everybody in that room, you could see the tears, the joy, the dreaming. You could see that America had given, the idea of America had given each of us courage, strength, joy, hope a sense of possibility that there could be another world to the one that we lived in. And so that was an incredible, that was an incredible moment. And, you know, at the time, the last president's headshot was hanging over the judge and the, and the judge who, the judge who swore us in did allude in a speech said, not everybody, not everybody feels about new immigrants as, as I do, as we do in this room. And I came out of the courtroom and tweeted a photograph of myself. This is why I wanted to write this book about a love, a nuanced love of America. I came out and tweeted a photo of myself with a naturalization certificate. And it was the most joyous day of my life. And immediately there was a, you know, 
I must say, the majority of people, joyous, just welcoming, just elated. There's a true joy in new Americans arriving. But there was a strain in social media who who said, you know, good, Roger, you've done it the legal way and started to kind of make a a political point out of the whole thing. And it, it devastated the date for me because I realized just because I'm white and funny and on television, they just project that Roger's one of the good ones. But the honest truth is I am a, a legal alien who came to this country with, you know, um, with big dreams, no plan, no money, bit of hustle. And um, it was it was really devastating that um, in that moment that 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 fight broke out on social media. And so I wanted to tell this story because I think the, the the story is important. And then and then even more so, Tommy, because I did I, I decided to write the book and then obviously did nothing about it. But then <laughs> lockdown began. I live in New York City. New York City was the, the ground zero of the pandemic. Sports shut down. Yeah. You know, that sports is how I make sense of the life. It's the drama. It's the human theater that animates, gives structure to my life. And so nature abhors a vacuum. And I um, started to write the book. And then as I wrote the book, the pandemic response um, just segued into the Black Lives Matter summer, the agony, the pain, just the, just the, 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 just the immense trauma of that period of time. And then into the toxicity of the election cycle, and I did, I did think, my God, is this the ultimate curse of Rog that I have stumbled <laughs> into? And and then the second thought, Tommy, is who the hell, if this thing goes bottom up, this election, who the hell is going to want to want to read a book about a love of America? Like, it, am I going to have to just <clears throat> plug it on Newsmax and OANN? And like, <laughs> the the, the publisher is going to be like, good news, we got someone to blurb your book. Bad news, it's Sebastian Gorka. He's the only <laughs> one who wants to, to attach himself to a love of America. So it was a it was a deeply traumatic time. And yeah. and through through the book, I tried to embrace that trauma. And I think the book is a, a beautiful antidote to some of that trauma. And in, the, in particular, the scene where you become a citizen and all the people around you and applauding for each other and the diversity in the room. I mean, it's, it's just a beautiful story. It's a uniquely American story. Uh, and I, I loved it. Um, all right, so I, I feel like I'm actually torturing you by not asking you about sports for this long. So the episode comes out <laughs> July 5th, right? What's left in the Euro 2021 tournament? I've been watching. A lot of listeners maybe haven't. What should they tune in for? And then, you know, do you have any pitches for uh, Olympic soccer later this summer? I know our, our the American women are as badass as badass gets. If only our men were half as good as our women, we would be we would be dominating on both sides of the field. So the Euros is the World Cup, but just for European teams. And it was postponed last year because of the pandemic. So it's been unbelievable just to have this at all, to have 11 cities across Europe host this just delicious tournament where the nations are taking the field with their histories taking the the field alongside of them. There's just so much narrative um, in this tournament. And there's been you know so much uh, so many storylines where because the joy of football is that it's really just a mirror that reflects societies, the politics, the culture that surround it. So there's been, and let's just say there's a lot of history when whenever yeah. a European team takes a field. So we've been we've been very blessed. A that it's happened at all. B that there's fans there. C that I mean there's been incredibly joyous storylines. There's been some terribly dark storylines with Hungary and you know, Victor Orban using his team as a 
essentially attempted to use his team as a symbol of of of, of statecraft and um mm-hmm. and, and and black sh- uh, black shirted thuggery. But when this podcast airs, there will we will be down to the final four. One of those four could be England, which is you know for England is is just a remarkable who are a, been a they're like the New York Knicks of of world football. They never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. So we'll be down to the final four, um, and then next weekend we have the, the 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 final and the joy that surrounded this tournament being played by men who have exhausted psychologically physically exhausted by the pandemic schedule of football over the last year they played with a giddiness with a adrenaline um just so many they, they pulled on the shirt sang the national anthem and they've almost reverted because they're all exhausted they're all knackered sure. and they've just played like kids on a schoolyard there's been a giddy joy a hilarity it's been like the score lines have been like aba basketball in the 1970s <laughs> And it's been uh, it's been the, a whole continent has made memories uh, that they will savor for generations. It was so fun uh, hearing you talk about the the England Germany game on Men in Blazers, your podcast, and uh, like hearing that there there are some people in the UK who see you know the UK play Germany and think about they still have that anger there from World War One or World War Two or like real past battles. I mean, to your point, like that history really does come out on the field for some folks. I'd never really occurred to me that that was true. In 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 the in the worst possible way, you know, this tournament is going on and there's an English-born bloke. You know, I ride with Team America now. I want to make that clear. When America and England play each other, you know, I am only cheering for one side and it's whatever side Piers Morgan isn't on. So... <laughs> I, I, I am I am absolutely um, on Team America, but I can measure my life by one traumatic, self-sabotaging uh, defeat against Germany after another. So I'm always yeah. braced for the darkness. And for the England team, the stakes feel so high, Tommy, because we enter this tournament as a divided nation, post-Brexit, divided in so many searing ways that manifest itself in a toxic fashion around the football, especially in the run-up to the tournament, when in the mm-hmm. practice games, the warm-up games, English fans return to watch their beloved national team for the first time in 16, 17 months and decided to boo their own players when they took the knee. You know, mm. the players are trying to protest racism in the game and in society. And in the run-up, that was a dominant storyline. The English manager had to, and he's, he's truly emotionally intelligent, Gareth Southgate. He's a deeply empathetic human being. He had to spend almost all of his press conferences talking about racism hmm. in the nation. He sounded more sane in doing so, I have to say, than our prime minister, you know, who by refusing to criticize the booing fans for an entire week just further divided the nation. Hmm. And that's the joy of this tournament is that this young England team are models, if they can pull it off, and by pull it off, like it's a national question rather than just a footballing one of a New England, Raheem Sterling, a J- Jamaican um, Englishman who has addressed the issue of racism in society in the most exquisite ways. He's scored three of the four goals the team have scored. He's an incredible human being. Amazing. The young star Marcus Rashford, who spent his summer taking on the British government on the issue of child hunger, feeding kids mm. below the poverty line, modelled a new form of of sportish, sporting leadership. And we always mock football players. You know, they make piles of cash. They just want to drink champagne with supermodels and then crash Lamborghinis into the lampposts. <laughs> but 
this team contained the seeds of a an exquisite England, a new England, um, you know, the, and, and and using their platform for the force of good, and that's really the battle. They they occasionally, to me, Tommy, seem to be some of the last sane human beings left in the country. I, I love it. I love it. Okay, so Raj, my my last question is really more of a favor. Uh, I think you're about to change my life. So I love watching the Euros. I love watching uh, the World Cup when it's on the Olympics. But I don't have a professional club. And I keep saying I want to watch more football, watch more soccer. Tell me. But I don't have a club. So w- will you be my my soccer sommelier and help me pick a team based off of some tasting notes and some personality traits that I'll share with you? Yeah, Tommy, that's why I live. I live to surf. And ultimately, football is just human theater. And you are about to pick your role. Let's do it. Okay. So my entire sports identity is I, is derived from being from Boston. Now, Rogers, we both know like the last couple decades has meant near constant domination, cheating. There's a lot of bad <laughs> shit there. But my my formative years as a kid were when Boston could never win a championship, right? In, in football, this was the the Parcells, Drew Bledsoe era. We were also living with the scar tissue from the 86 Red Sox in 1918. Oh, Tony Eason, make the case that he's <laughs> so- the greatest Patriots quarterback of all time, because I can. <laughs> Tony Eason. Uh, okay, so that's my sports. That's the regional part. I'm a Democrat. So obviously a glutton for didn't, punishment. Didn't, didn't know that about you, Tommy. <laughs> I live in Los Angeles now, so I'm soft. I don't like the cold. I'm pampered. I'm whiny. I struggle with time zones. So those are things we got to factor in there. Some favorite players growing up. I had Ray Bork. We had Paul Pierce, Manny Ramirez, Nomar. So I, I don't know. Did I Did I give you enough? What do we think? What, do you, what, what I need to know, Tommy, ultimately, what do you like in life? Do you like winning? Did you like the Red Sox better when they gave you endless dreams and then self-sabotaged and they taught you that life ultimately is about endless hope? And when you do have a modicum of joy, you just dance as if you're at your own kid's wedding because you know life is dark and really it's about savoring great times when you have them. Or do you prefer the world domination days when you could say, oh, look down on us all from the mountain and just say, yeah, we cheated, but let's overlook that part. <laughs> Winning ultimately is all that matters. Where are you on that spectrum? Because that's ultimately the issue. I, I'm not going to lie. I, I, I kind of miss the pre- 2004, like Red Sox vibe when we were, you know, the lovable losers. I remember watching Aaron Boone just smash a ball into the stands and walking by another bar as I went to my car and hearing New York, New York being played on the piano. You know, like I like the pain. Yeah. Tommy. Tommy, I, by the way, I relate to that. I, used to, I love traveling America. It's one of the joys of my job is to, and I've missed it so much over the past 17 months. I love Charlottesville. I love Nashville. I love all yeah. the Vils. And I used to love when I first came here, going to Boston in the late 90s, going to Fenway Park and just sitting there. And it reminded me of home. It reminded me of Liverpool, just the, just the sadness of the fans the shattered, shattered, bereft hope, and and just, but just the eternal, t- eternal up to willing to go again, willing to be constantly, oh, Charlie Brown kicking <laughs> any ball that Lucy was holding. And I'm going to tell you, Tommy, okay. welcome, welcome. This is life changing for you. Welcome to Everton Football Club. It's yes, it's it's just it's a family, it's community, it's a club that does everything off the field. 
so joyously. Like they invest in community. They've got social programming. They care about their fan base. They just, it's such an authentic, exquisite club. Um, we eternally are desperate to return to former glory of the 1980s. We, we find we found let's just say we are lost in the woods without breadcrumbs to uh, help find our way out and the occasional moments the occasional moments of glory they feel all the sweeter and i do i've made it's one of my life achievements you know ultimately my greatest achievement is becoming american and i do hope that in six generations time my mbc headshot just is above my descendants dinner table and someone will say who the hell's that ball person and they'll say oh we don't we don't remember his name anymore but he's the one that brought us to america that is a that is the greatest achievement of my life but the other achievement is to make i have four kids and i've made them all everton fans like uh, it's hard work it's because americans like winning and everton don't do that a lot but my wife is like, why the hell would you do this? Why the hell? And why, now she's going to say, why did you make Tommy? Why did you make that sweet, bloody Tommy an Everton fan? And I do believe it's an approach to life. Life is hard. Life is dark. There's a lot of disappointments, a lot of challenges. But when those moments of wonder come, Tommy, when those moments just dance, just savor them, just make. That's a whole point of sports. Make collective memories together. And now you and me, Tommy, we are going to make them together. Well, now you got five kids. Thank you, Raj. <laughs> the book, the book is Reborn in the USA. I, I literally picked it up as I told you via DM. The only reason I put it down was because I actually went to a baseball game. It's such a fun read. It will make you feel uh, better about the country. You'll laugh your ass off at lots of fun stories. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. So, Roger Bennett, wonderful to have you on the show. Have a great Fourth of July. Have a great everything. Same to you, beautiful man, Tommy, and to all of you. At- Pod Save America and your op courage. We're doing the outro. This is it. All of us are still here. Love it. Ira, Jason. Hello. Can this I tell you what outro. my uh, my runners up were that I didn't get to say? Of course. Yes, please. Uh, they were uh, uh, fight the power because Chuck D Good came one. on Love It or Leave It. Okay. Good one. Uh, they were the mm. times they are changing by Bob Dylan, specifically because it is a song in which the waters rising is right. a metaphor, and now the waters are actually rising, and still nothing changes. Hey. Um, and mm. you know, hey. Hey. <laughs> that's it. Those are my alternates. Okay. Those, those were good. the two I didn't get to. Mm. My, I went my, for my Copeland theme. Mm. Man, my alts were uh, were uh, Rump Shaker by Rex and Effects, and Great one. um. Uh, and Philadelphia Freedom by Elton John. So oh, I like that. Mm. I like that. Any Altira? I had Eminem's White America. <laughs> um, and I also, you know, I also had um, Did It On Him by Nicki Minaj because mm. I'm a bar before I'm an American. I like that. Uh, I had Dixie Chicks, Not Ready to Make Nice. Good protest song. Lord Royals. Because that we're, we're, Royals is not in our blood, but we're happy to be your ruler. I thought that was a very American sentiment. Uh, Jason Isbell, the TVA. It's about infrastructure projects. Well, they're very hot right now. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel, America. A moon rose over an open field. You know, who hasn't wow. put that song? I can't believe no one picked the Pod Save America theme Yeah, song. that's true. Like the, the Nintendo music. Oh, Childish Gambino, This America. Simon and Garfunkel, America, reasons. one of our great pop songs that doesn't rhyme. It doesn't happen, happen often, but that one does it. Um, I will always, uh, 
I will always love the Katy Perry song Roar, but for the fact that in the song she rhymes uh, the word fire with the word fire. It's uh, That will always bother me. You can't rhyme the same words. It hurts our brains. I don't know why, but it does. See, that's why you're not a barb. Yeah. Love it. Okay. (laughs) I love Nicki Minaj rhyming China 12 times in one verse. Okay. We're different people. That's just something that's okay. Yeah. Right. That's America too, isn't it? I thought. Yeah, it is. Mm. It is. Mm -hmm. Well, we we learned something about America and ourselves in the outro. So thank you all again. Talk to you next week. (laughs) Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Flavia Casas. Our associate producers are Jazzy Marine and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papadimitrio, Caroline Rustin, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, Yale Freed, and Narmel Konian, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something you need to get off your chest? What is your outlet for working through the things that stress you out? Uh, you know, I, I do the crossword. That helps. I'm also, I also go to therapy, you know, and I say, uh, this week, I don't want to make any progress. She's like, ugh, that's what you said last week. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com PSA.